Welcome to Defining Endurance, a podcast focused on providing actionable insights for endurance athletes. Whether you're an athlete just getting started in endurance sports or a veteran looking to gain an edge, the Defining Endurance podcast is here to ask curious questions with athletes and fitness professionals, and most importantly, dive deep on current training topics so you can become the best version of yourself. Let us wait no longer. Let's dive into this week's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Defining Endurance. I am host Lexi Miller, joined again today by the amazing social worker, Jessica Joyner. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Thank you so much for coming back. Uh, You were here last time talking about perfectionism, uh, which ended up being a really cool topic, especially as we went into the Olympics and, and a lot of events that transpired there. But today we're talking about addiction. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your past experience in working with people suffering from addiction. Sure. Well, first of all, yeah, thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed addictions counselor. And so I have been working with a very diverse population of individuals um, experiencing substance abuse and addiction for almost 15 years now. And I've worked with anyone from adolescents um, all the way to older adults. Great. And so, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about athletes and addiction, though, you know, this is a problem that not only faces elite athletes, but the general population as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about both. Um, So to start out, is there anyone who's a little bit more predisposed to addiction? Yeah, so addiction um, doesn't discriminate, right? (laughs) It really can um, run the gamut from from anybody. Um, So addiction can be genetic, um, and studies have shown that if one parent um, struggles with addiction um, or with an alcohol use disorder, for instance, um, that you will have a three to four times higher uh, risk of becoming an alcoholic yourself. Um, And, you know, the American Psychological Association has also stated um, that at least half of a person's susceptibility to drug and alcohol addiction can be linked to genetic factors. Um, However, you know, genetics are only one component of that nature-nurture debate. (laughs) And so it's not just about genetics. It's also about that nurture aspect as well. which are those environmental factors that contribute to a person's predictive, uh, excuse me, their predisposition uh, to substance uh, abuse issues. So some of those predictive factors we can look at through um, what's called the ACE study, um, and we can get an idea uh, if someone is going to be at a higher risk for that. So that ACE study that I'm referring to, or it's an, it's a screening tool that we use, and it's um, it stands for uh, adverse childhood experiences, um, and it looks at a lot of neglect and abuse components um, in a child's life. And for instance, if someone grew up in an environment that lacked uh, basic needs being met, um, if violence was in the home, whether that was either domestic violence or even violence in the streets around them in their neighborhood, um, if substance abuse was in the home, any other type of abuse, so sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, and poverty also. So all of those things can contribute to someone's uh, risk of abusing substances. Um, there are some other uh, predispositions um, that we all have 
uh, not just athletes, but we all could have. So that would also make us at a higher risk. And that would be um, if an individual has some mental health issues, um, they're twice as likely to suffer with substance abuse uh, disorder. Um, if anybody has low uh, dopamine and serotonin levels, which are the, the brain chemicals that activate our, our pleasure center in the brain and make us feel good. And if we're low on any of those, then uh, we're also at a higher risk. Uh, and gender can make an impact as well. Um, men have been found to have a higher rate um, of addiction to women by about two to one. Um, although, and although that uh, women tend to begin using substances at much smaller dosages than men. Um, for some reason, their drug use usually escalates um, to addiction at a much more rapid rate than men. That's all incredibly interesting. And I think definitely something that, that you know, we've probably all experienced at one point or another in our lives, whether it's someone we care about or ourselves. Um, you know, addiction definitely, like you said, doesn't discriminate and it, it can really hit any person. Um, and really, you know, it doesn't mean mm -hmm. anything against that person if they is something they do struggle with. I think it's so easy to be like, well, that person was weak, that person, um, you know, wasn't taking care of themselves. But that's not the case at all. There's, as you mentioned, so many other factors that go into why a person could be predisposed. Um, and none of them are personality or, you know, right. a negative personality trait. Uh, so, but going into athletes, why are athletes at risk? Yeah, so athletes have the same same risks that we all have that I just mentioned, all those you know predisposition possibilities. Um, but they also obviously have some other added contributing factors, and you know there's just this long history of substance abuse in sports, um, and substances have been a part of sports you know since be since before they were really considered quote unquote organized, and many of the athletes today are using for the very same reasons that athletes used back in like say 300 BC, um, which are, you know, those reasons would be, you know, en enhancing performance um, to mask uh, pain and injury and really to relieve stress. Um, so athletes are in general just at that higher risk of injuring themselves because of the active nature of sports, right? Um, and there's just some different studies that have shown, you know, different correlations between uh, athletes and addiction and alcohol use and opiate use. Um, but in general, you know, athletes, uh, well, a study has shown that, um, you know, playing sports actually has a direct correlation to alcohol use. And in an NCAA study, um, 46% of student athletes self-reported that they use alcohol in both their competitive and off seasons, which is, which is a lot of athletes, right? Um, and another study actually showed some, some information about concussions and alcohol use and really saying that there's a, a direct predictive factor to concussions. So obviously if you are in sports, you have a higher risk of, 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 attaining <laughs> a, a concussion, right? Depending on what type of sport you're in. And so um, if you have concussions, a study showed that uh, you will tend to drink more often and more in one sitting than say your non-injured 
cohort. Um, and so those are just some other, other things that, that really contribute to why athletes um, are at a higher risk for substance abuse and addiction. Right. No, I think that it's really interesting that it's kind of like these two different sides of it. One side is there's that social aspect of you're on a team and, you know, how did teams bond? You know, obviously it's playing that sport together, but then also there's that party after the game. Um, But then there's also that kind of when you're isolated from your team, you're trying to cope. Um, So it's interesting. It's kind of hitting on the two sides there. When we talk about, you know, maybe anxiety around performance, you know, you and I talked about perfectionism in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does that go into drug and alcohol use? The perfectionism piece or the anxiety? Perfectionism or just like that. Yeah. That pressure we put on ourselves to perform um, the competing at a high level. Right. I think that that is, yeah, that's also huge. Um, When we have so much pressure and we have that perfectionistic attitude, um, we don't want to fail. Um, and if we make a mistake in a game or we have, uh, we're really hard on ourselves and we only focus on those negatives, sometimes that can tend to lead to, um, I want to feel better after a game or after a match or whatever. And so I, I am going to go drink or I am going to go party with my friends. Um, and, you know, there's a, a huge correlation as well between if you affiliate with Greek uh, when you're in college, if you're, you know, at all affiliated with a, with a Greek association, then um, there's also a higher risk um, because we all know that uh, in that, in, in the Greek environment, right, you, most people are, are partying. Um, I went to see you <laughs> and uh, we see you has always been on the top 25 of party schools, right? I think, um, I don't know where they are now, um, but when I was there, they were definitely in that top 25. I think we may have even been in the top 10. Um, and so that's a huge aspect of of um, college life and of athletics. And when you, especially when you play sports in, 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 in college, um, and, and to kind of go back to the anxiety piece, I think if we don't know how to deal with that in any other way, and that's been a coping skill that we've used maybe all along, um, maybe even just starting in college, but if that's something that we use to calm down, um, to regulate in some way, to help us feel better, um, then that just puts us at that higher risk. And I think athletes just have, um, with that work ethic and that perfectionism, have another added higher risk of becoming um, addicted or, or have substance use problems because of that. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, kind of in that same vein, uh, something I wanted to touch on is, you know, I see you a party school. I went to Western State uh, in Gunnison, Colorado, and we had a really high instance of people who left um, due to, you know, struggling with addiction, substance use, overdose. Um, and so I was interested into why so many of my classmates were leaving. Uh, and so I started, I did some research and a professor kind of guided me in like looking into some of the reasons. And, you know, Western State out in Gunnison, a lot of mountain bikers, a lot of skiers and people who really are like seeking adrenaline. Um, but then that means that they're like, then turning that off and going to back home working at that restaurant 
um, going to class is is not exciting for them. And so that dopamine response kind of gets thrown off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're getting that adrenaline and that was fulfilling that need. And then they aren't getting that need fulfilled mm-hmm. and drugs were a replacement for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, on that organized sports side, you have that team aspect. And then on that thrill seeking side, you have that like life can't be boring mm-hmm. and that your body isn't generating uh, those hormones that we need in the same way. Right. Um, and that's something I, I, I want to touch on a little bit as we move forward uh, with ultra running as well mm-hmm. um, and kind of that recovery from addiction, but then how in ultra running that can kind of go the opposite way, but we'll get into that in a moment. Okay. Um, so what are some cues that an athlete, that an athlete might be uh, dealing with addiction? Well, um, yeah, so there's just some different signs and symptoms that we can look for. Um, and depending on what sport you're in, too, is going to kind of be predictive of maybe some of those signs and symptoms. Um, so, I mean, like if, if people are experiencing like flu-like, flu-like symptoms, if they have some serious mood swings going on, um, really, if they're also having a lack of interest, even in their sport, sometimes that's that's an indicator that like, hey, something's going on. Um, if people are noticing that their performance just really is a little off. It's not quite the same. Maybe some of those slowed reaction times type of thing. Um, their balance and coordination can be off and affected. So, and sometimes these are really slight. They're not huge things. And so it's really, um, people have to really pay attention to themselves as well as other people paying attention to their athletes in, a, in an organization to kind of be like, hey, that's not just quite right with so-and-so, right? They're not they're not catching the ball the same way that they used to. They, they used to be a little bit faster off the gun, right? Um, if they're having a hard time focusing, um, also like, you know, just, uh, it's, and, and that could be even in their sport, like having a hard time reading their plays, things like that, but also in school, right? If they're student athletes at the time, school can be really hard. They may even be suffering in their grades. Um you know, sometimes it's isolating from others, depending on what type of drug you're using and how far along maybe in this process you are. Um, so sometimes that isolation factor, um, you know, there's just some long-term and short-term effects of, of using. And, and so that presents in different ways, but obviously some of those can be like, if you're, if you are partying so hard and um, you have some of the, the hangovers and the withdrawal symptoms the next day, um, and you're supposed to be at practice and you're just not really um, all there because you're still kind of recovering from a hangover. Um, sometimes that memory loss, um, depending again, if you're drinking a ton, you may have some of those blackouts or um, passing out kind of thing. Um, there's also that if you notice that people are really starting to engage in some risky behavior um, that maybe they normally weren't um, engaging in before, um, that can be uh, part of those signs and symptoms. So if you have a friend who's you know starting to you know go out a lot more, party a lot more, um, or even engaging in some high risk sex behaviors, things like that, that normally they wouldn't be doing. And so those are all some red flags that you can be like, Hey, what's, what's going on? (laughs) No. And I think that's, that's a great point that, you know, it might not always be the person who's struggling might, who who will notice Mm -hmm. that they're struggling first. Unfortunately, it might be the people Mm -hmm. around them who care about them noticing. Um, So we'll kind of break this next question into two. We'll start off with 
you know, if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I have a problem, what should they do? Yeah, that's um, a really good question. And I think that um, it depends on like, well, the hope is, is that they have like a friend or a trusted coach, um, even a, a athletic trainer, but somebody that maybe they can feel comfortable going and talking to and saying, hey, like I, this has been going on. I've been struggling. Um, I've been overusing my pain, kill, pain pills. I've been... Um, been drinking too much, whatever the, the issue may be, and and just really be able to confide in that person to say, I really need, do need some help. And then hopefully the, the trainer or the coach or even that trusted friend may be able to help hook them up with um, somebody within their sports organization. Hopefully they may have a mental health provider within that organization who can help them. Uh, if not, um, the hope would also then be that they would be able to uh, find somebody else maybe in the community um, to help them who is also a trusted, you know, mental health provider, um, addictions counselor that can, that can help them. But I think that's maybe the first step. And it, I think sometimes athletes don't, aren't so quick to just say, Hey, I'm having a struggle and this is what's going on. I think sometimes it's going to be in those subtle ways. So I think athletic trainers and coaches and uh, other people who really have day-to-day all the time access to athletes. Uh, it's, it's part of their responsibility to really try to pick up on some of those red flags um, and to, to notice that, Hey, like as I'm wrapping this athlete's foot, um, they're just not there. They're, they're not the same. Their personality isn't quite right. They look a little bit more down than that, what they have. And, and to ask some of those really important questions of like, Hey, is, you know, is everything all right? You know, what's, what's going on? And hopefully that athlete would then be able to, you know, to confide uh, in them. But I, I do think uh, that's one way. I think there are other community um, referral resources as well. Um, the problem is, is that sometimes athletes don't know about those. So I think it's going to start really first within the um, within the organization or within their friend group. Totally. And then I think, again, you know, so much of being a, an athlete is being able to push through discomfort and pain, which unfortunately doesn't lend itself to asking for help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. frequently might end up in a situation where it is the people around you noticing, um, which of course is always a really hard place to be in. And something I kind of want to hear your advice on is if you see someone struggling, what's the best thing you can do? So I, I would say, yeah, go talk to them, find out what's going on. Um, have that conversation. Um, use some some good dialogue and some open question, open-ended questions that will really kind of help draw out maybe some of their in the the person who might be uh, abusing drugs. You know, uh, pull out some of those insecurities of what they're really going through and uh, help them to open up. Um, also maybe even saying like, Hey, I'll go with you to the coach or to the trainer, or I'll help you find uh, something that, you know, somebody for you to talk to that is, you know, a professional and, you know, cause I can't help you as much as maybe a professional can. And so I want to, you know, I'll go with you to uh, the mental health uh, office in the sports um, athletic department Um, or I'll, help you get hooked up with uh, the other mental health professional if you're in a different type of sports organization. 
um, I think just being there, you know, really, especially if you're kind of on that friend side, <laughs> just being there, being able to listen to them, also being able to say like, yeah, it sounds like you're really struggling and I don't know how to help you. How do we find you help? Right. Like I, I can be here for you. I can be your friend. I can support you. I don't know how to help you any more than that. So, but I think you need to, to find somebody else. Right. Um, so I think those are important pieces of somebody else who might be seeing that somebody might be struggling. No, that's great. And I think it's, it's always that hard place if you want to help the people you care about, but of course, recovery from addiction is, is in the end, the, the person going through its decision. Um, but you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's different stages and they start off with the pre-contemplation and contemplation. Mm -hmm. So if you can be there to support that person as they start mm -hmm. to realize that, you know, this isn't just their own struggle and that there's people around them who care and are affected by their wellness. Um, I think that's so important right. and just a good way to, you know, always be accepting and open. I was just going to say, sometimes it might mean, um, you know, giving a little bit of that tough love too, depending like how you said, like what stage are they in? How, how aware are they of their own issue and own problem? And if you're seeing that it might be pretty significant and, and getting into a more severe range, but the person really isn't recognizing that sometimes it really is about that tough love that like you are not performing, you're not doing what you need to do. You're falling down on all of these things and you're not going to class anymore. And like, you have got to get help. Right. And again, we can't make it the other person do it, but sometimes it does require a lot of that tough love to be like setting boundaries and saying like, if you're going to continue to, use the way that you're using, like, I can't hang around you anymore, right? Like I can't, because I have to separate myself a little bit from that. Um, I will be here for you and support you whenever you want to get help. But I can't make you get help. I can't make you drink the water <laughs> if you're not going to. Um, so all I can do is be here to support you, but also set healthy boundaries for yourself too, um, in all of that. I think that's great advice. And yeah, I think it probably depends on your relationship with the person. If you're close, that's that tough love, tough love might mm -hmm. be the way to go. Yeah. Okay. So another thing I really wanted to touch on is, you know, there is that opiate epi the epidemic going on in the U.S. really probably throughout the world, but it's something that's really hitting our country hard. How does that play into the world of athletics? Yeah, that's a big thing right now. And, uh, you know, there are so many reasons why people in general start to use opioids, but specifically for athletes, you know, um, they tend to start using in order to, you know, over, overcome that, that general physical uh, pain just from the normal wear and tear from the, their sport um, or obviously as a result of an injury. And so, you know, several of my clients actually admit that this is how their problems with opiates started. And so they were legitimately prescribed the medication uh, to help with the pain of an injury or recovering from their surgery, um, which are obviously completely valid reasons for taking prescription pain pills. Um, but things for them somehow quickly got out of control and a couple of them, you know, did end up in rehab. Um, athletes are often prescribed uh, more than what they actually need. There's just a in, in general, in the world, there is, um, there's just a, 
overprescribing of opiates. And um, there is a really interesting uh, Netflix documentary um, that really talks about how opiates um, became so overprescribed. Um, and so I would recommend people watch that. Um, I will try to think of the name of that before, before we go. Um, but getting back to athletes, I think that that has, what that document describes has definitely bled into the world of sports. <laughs> um, because athletes are legitimately being described um, medications uh, for, for legitimate reasons, right? But statistics have shown that doctors are really quick to give out opiate prescriptions. So example is in 1991, um, physicians prescribed about 76 million opioid prescriptions. And in 2012, that number peaked at 255 million. So that's resulting in a prescribing rate of about 81.3 prescription, prescriptions per 100 people. So that's a lot. <laughs> um, and athletes just in general are twice as likely to be pre prescribed painkillers as anyone else. And again, we kind of talked about that before because the nature of sport is activity and we're putting ourselves at a higher risk just through that, that type of activity. Um, for being injured. So there have been some different, you know, prescribing guidelines that have gone into effect. But um, in general, um, much of my um, experience with athletes has been, you know, like when they are injured and or they've had surgery or whatever, they sometimes get a script for like a 30 day prescription of opiate pain pills. Would really, they probably only need a script for like seven to 10 days, maybe. Right. Um, but they're getting like a 30 day supply. So that's a huge increase in risk that they're going to abuse that. Um, you know, so that it can look, that can come in different forms. So like if they start to abuse that, um, uh, oftentimes it's, taking more than what was prescribed at a time. So instead of taking that your prescription every, you know, two to four hours or four to six hours, you're taking it every two to four hours. And instead of taking one, you're taking two, right? So that can quickly um, become an abuse and get into addiction issues. Uh, opiates are one of the fastest things to become addicted to um, and one of the hardest things to recover from. Um, and part of that is because there's such a high risk of relapsing with opiates. There's actually like a 91% relapse rate with opiates versus like a 40 to 60% relapse rate with any other drug. So it can really take a long time to overcome. Now, some, some statistics really are showing us that this is really prevalent in the world of sports. Um, according to an NCAA um, study, like 23% of student athletes have used opiates in the last year. Um, most had a prescription, um, but 6% used without one. And, you know, as I've kind of just described, oftentimes they don't have to have the prescription. And it doesn't matter if you do have the prescription because you can still overuse and abuse that prescription. 
Um, another statistic is, you know, like in the in the journal, uh, American Journal of Public Health discovered that teenage athletes are 50% more at risk for misusing prescription drugs than their non-playing counterparts. Um, and the Center for Disease Control um, stated that heroin uh, has more than doubled among the 18 to 25 year olds in the last decade, which typically is right around our prime athlete age, right? Um, and both the DEA and the CDC have noted that uh, there's a growing number of young heroin users um, who are either current or they were former student athletes. So there is a huge crossover and problem of opiate addiction um, that is kind of just going along with that, uh, with the, the epidemic of it that we have um, in general. Um, sports is kind of that microcosm of, of society at large, right? And so all of the problems that we're seeing kind of in society, we're also seeing in, those, in that smaller stage, if you will, um, within the sports industry. And so it's a huge problem. No, it's it's incredibly heartbreaking when when you look at the stats behind it and how many young people are affected. Uh, another resource I really I can't say I enjoyed it because it was such a heartbreaking read. Uh, but the book Dope Sick uh, goes into the history of um, you know opiate use in America, and the author's really great. She has been a reporter on it for a long time, and uh, it mixes between, you know, kind of the more facts and figures, you know, hard data, mm -hmm. and then a lot of her anecdotal experience of talking to people. I will say, as a very sensitive person, mm -hmm. it was a difficult read for me. Um, as I'm sure those documentaries, <laughs> if you're, if you're someone who gets a little bit tied up in, in the empathy of it all, maybe not the best thing to watch to chill out on a Friday night. But if you're interested in and learning more, those are always great resources. Right. And I'm sorry, I guess uh, as I'm looking that up, it is the crime of the century and it is an HBO documentary. So it's on HBO Prime. Sorry, I missed up, messed that up between Netflix and HBO. <laughs> There's too many streaming services these days. <laughs> but crime of the century on HBO. Um, so you can stream it on HBO Max and all of that. Um, so kind of diving into sobriety a little bit, how can sports support sobriety? Yeah, I think, well, sports are, are, are just great in general for kind of keeping us active and busy. Um, and there are just so many benefits to, to sports and there are a lot of, and those benefits are really what we would call protective factors, um, in sports to the, you know, and so for those who participate, um, it obviously can strengthen our physical health. Um, exercise. We learn about teamwork. Um, also about how to problem solve. It really is just a way to connect and make friends. Um, it can increase our confidence, um, building our self-esteem, and really we can learn how to become leaders. And I think that uh, sports just has a way of building community um, and feeling a sense of belonging, even giving us some purpose. Um, so it really is just that way to connect with others that, um, is really just so important to all of us. Connection is a huge piece of, of that sense of belonging, right? And we all want to belong. And so I think those are just some of those ways that sports in general can, 
can keep us sober and can also be um, those protective factors of helping us to not fall into some of those environmental predisposition factors that I talked about before, right? Can keep us out of, out of the streets, can keep us busy, can keep us occupied um, so that we're not getting into some other, maybe more serious, dangerous activities. That's, that's so awesome. And I think that's important that people can remember that even if they have to leave their sport temporarily to get help and, you know, take care of their wellness and work on sobriety, that the sport can then become that tool in the toolbox to help them, you know, stay sober and safe. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the world of ultra running, which is where we do a lot of our coaching, um, there's a lot of elite runners. I'm thinking, you know, Timothy Olson and Katja Corbett, who have recovered from addictions and they found a lot of, you know, solace in running these long distances, you know, 100, 200 mile races. Um, However, that kind of, you know, I think food for thought, and maybe you have answers on this, maybe you don't. It was something I started researching this morning, you know, up feeding a baby and, and having all the, all the thoughts about this podcast. <laughs> um, you know, is there the possibility of overcorrecting with sports and then having, you know, your athletic performance replace your addiction in possibly a negative way? And is that something you've seen with athletes? Yeah, definitely. I think that oftentimes, um, because we get those natural endorphins and dopamine and and serotonin level, right? Like all of those things when we work out, um, that can definitely start to be the replacement for outside substances that we ingest into our bodies, right? And so there is a fine line and there is a balance with that. Um, And so, you know, I've dealt with people who have kind of gone, um, you know, even exercise, um, anorexia type stuff, right? Um, so this uh, then obviously goes into some eating disorder type things, but we can overexercise and we can overdo it in any kind of sport. Um, but oftentimes that's what somebody is seeking um, is that release of dopamine at the end of a, of a long run or whatever, you know, any of those feel good brain chemicals, that's what we're looking for. And so you have to start to ask yourself, like, what is it that I, why am I doing this? Right. Why am I exercising for six hours a day? Right. Is it because I need that dopamine dump because I need those chemicals? Um, Is there another reason? Right. Like there's, but it's a fine line. Um, And it's something that you have to be very aware of when, especially if you are recovering from addiction, because you don't want to cross addict um, and then start, leave, leave one substance slash addiction and just put it all that energy and effort back into another one. And the thing with exercise and with the the long distance running is that, well, Hey, I'm doing something healthy. I'm doing something good for my body. Right. And so we have that perception of I'm, I'm not doing anything bad. So working out for six hours a day or running all these long distances isn't bad. But if you're doing it still as part of that escape mechanism, as a way of not coping and dealing with your um, with any of the other issues that might be going on in your life, um, if you're doing it as a numbing uh, mechanism, those are all signs that you're not doing it for those healthy reasons. You're doing it as um, that escape and you're doing it for the same reasons that you may have been addicted to a drug in the first place. Wow. That's, I mean, I think that's something that so many athletes can probably relate to, you know, maybe they don't hit the extreme, but 
so many people I've talked to where they talk about feeling like anxious and upset and like a bunch of emotions come up when they take a day off or that they're unable to take that full recovery day. Um, and so I think it's just important to remember that, you know, while exercising is so good for us and so good for our mental health, it can also, we can overcorrect into it. Um, and that it can really get into that dangerous place. Um, so before we close out any resources that you can recommend for people to look into. Yeah, I would say that, um, look at your, um, look in your community, whatever organization that you are in, um, whatever sports organization, find out who those mental health and, and, um, behavioral health providers are just know their name, go get to know them even maybe before anything starts, but, you know, build a, build a rapport with them. Um, don't think of them as kind of the, the people that you don't want to talk to. <laughs> um, you know, again, kind of destigmatizing, right. Mental and behavioral health is like, you know, talk to those providers and um, don't feel like just because you're starting to build a rapport outside of, you know, a, a necessity of having to go see them, um, that that's going to mean that you are going to need to go see them. Um, sorry, I don't know if that made sense. But <laughs> um, but what I want, you know, people to, to know is that it's, it's okay to go seek help. And so know your your trainers, have that rapport, build that rapport with your coaches as well. Um, know that you can go talk to them um, and know that they will also help set you up with another professional that can help you walk through that process of recovery um, and of getting you the help that you need, whatever level that might be at. Um, you might just be starting your struggle with with it, but you don't want it to get any worse. And so, um, there's different levels of care for that, right? You may only need to go see a therapist every every week or once in a while to just maintain and, and know that, you know, you're going to have support, that you don't have to turn to drugs or alcohol to kind of deal with the things that you thought drugs and alcohol were helping you deal with. Um, there are also a lot of community um, resources. So um, for those who don't want to stay within their sports organization for whatever reason, um, they can look up uh, different drug and alcohol um, programs. There's different facilities for different levels of care, mind you. Um, but there are different facilities. They're in inpatient rehab, IOP, intensive outpatient. Um, and then there's also just community professionals like myself, who um, have been in the field for a long time, who work with, um, like I said, a wide range of, of people going through substance abuse issues. So there's a lot of private practice type uh, therapists um, who, who are also willing to help. Um, and there are some, again, like myself, who deal specifically with athletes. Um, and so kind of know that culture um, and know the mentality of what, what sports and, and athletics uh, that environment can do and how it can contribute to different factors um, that a person might be going through. So I think those are some, some, some of the general um, types of, of referral resources that, that people have at their, you know, fingertips. Thank you so much. And I think that's, um, you know, prior to coaching, I worked in the mental health field. And when I worked at the crisis center, one thing we always talked about was like, you can never have too many tools in the toolbox. Um, you know, it's good to know mm -hmm. all your resources for everything and not feel like, you know, you have to depend completely on your coach, depend completely on your teammate, your friend, um, that you have a therapist that you can call if you need to. You have, 
that community group you can go to. Um, and that there's, you know, if you mm-hmm. need to go get help in an inpatient, outpatient, uh, or a mixture of the two, that you're able to do that. Um, there's lots of ways to work around insurance. And I think there's there's a lot of resources that show mm-hmm. you, you know, what your insurance can provide, or if you don't have insurance, make sure that you're getting the help that you, you need. Um, and then, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. There's so many people like you in the world who work with athletes and the mental health side. And just the same as if we, you know, hurt our knee, we would go see a physical therapist, um, go to a coach. If you're having, you know, you want to do well in your next race, going and taking care of that mental aspect, whether that you're fully, you know, feeling as though you're struggling with addiction or just that things aren't feeling right. And you don't want to end up in a situation where you're unhealthy, I think is so important. So thank you so much for, for working with, you know, this athletic population. Um, Again, we appreciate having you so much. Uh, we'll link to your website just because I think it's such a great resource for, for addiction and athletes um, in our show notes. Anything else before we close? Uh, no, I think that's all. Thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you again, Jessica. 